Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It was 93 years ago this Sunday, January 15th, that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was born. His birthday is observed as a national holiday on the third Monday of January the only federal holiday designated as a national day of service. Atlanta takes special pride in Dr. King as a native son. And later this hour, we'll hear about important local landmarks you may visit around the city in honor of the King holiday. First... 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a New York Times critic's pick headline that reads, In Station Eleven, the world ends beautifully. Numerous critics are describing the post-apocalyptic show as affirming and uplifting. Critics are also effusive about one of the actors whose artistry we've known about for several years now. I consider her a friend of the show. Danielle Deadweiler plays the character of Miranda Carroll on Station Eleven. She joins us now via Zoom. Danielle, welcome back to City Lights. Oh, thank you for welcoming me home, Lois. Oh, <laughs> so sweet. And seeing you in my hometown, where I grew up in Chicago, and watching you on the L and in the Auditorium Theater, I only hope that you had a very warm coat, and, and, <laughs> and maybe you got to see some of the high points of this city when you weren't shooting. Oh, I did. First of all, that was the first thing I did when I got there, because two of my friends who lived there prior to me being there, they said, Danielle, do not worry about an Atlanta coat. It will serve you not. <laughs> and so I immediately went to get a Chicago bread coat in order to keep warm. And then the show happened to give us one Canada goose, baby. And, and so it kept me warm trudging through the city, going to, you know, the South Side, going to Evanston. 
and just seeing everything about this, you know, very transitional place, which feels transitional in the way that Atlanta does. But <laughs> I even was there for a polar vortex. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm not sure if that's a badge of honor or a sentence. I feel like I got one. <laughs> yeah, surviving it. Yeah, forget the apocalypse. You survived the polar vortex. I survived a polar vortex. It, it was, it's invigorating. I don't know why one would want to do it multiple times, but it was invigorating. <laughs> right. Well, among the recurring comments from various critics and viewers has been don't worry about the pandemic premise of the show. Station Eleven is about much more than just the end of the world. How would you describe the show if a synopsis is possible? I think the show is about art. It is about creation. It's a creation story of how legacy moves through us how community develops. At, that's it at its core. We follow the life of a woman in Miranda Carroll and how she comes to, to know herself, how she comes to appreciate what it is that she has experienced on a, a subconscious level or visceral level and what it means to navigate relationships in a pre-pandemic world for her as a super survivalist under a remembered traumatic history and how she passes on survivalist practices to a world that is post-pandemic. Hmm. What was it like being immersed in a series about a pandemic during the pandemic? The most stressful thing you can ever experience. I would think. You know what? Okay. So this is what happened. We shot in Chicago and Toronto. Actually, we shot episodes one and three in Chicago. We're intentionally taking a break so that, you know, the seasons could shift. And then the pandemic began that March. So we were shooting one and three starting in January, 2020. And so I, being who I am, Miranda is a survivalist. I'm witnessing all of this happening. I'm watching and hearing about the doctor who initially died in the Philippines. I'm waiting for the first people who are contracted in, in Wuhan to come back to the U.S. And, and thinking about, you know, how all of this is impacting us and knowing that the conversation is proliferating, but it's not being wholly regarded by the majority in the way that it, it would be quite yet. And so I'm thinking about this whilst we're making it, but the world isn't shifting yet. The outside world is still living in a, pre, in a pre-pandemic manner. And so I'm on the train. You know, I'm on the, I'm like, wow, he's eating a donut. This person across from me was just eating a donut in the most intimate fashion and fingers in the mouth and everything. And it bothered me to my core. I, I just controlled where I was. I was deeply entrenched in filming, but said stay inside a little bit more often and was deeply, you know, involved in the production and the crafting of, of Miranda and the story. So I was unnerved. My son was going to initially come. I said, no, thanks. It's okay. I'll see you in a short time. You know, it's making those kind of decisions whilst the world was still moving in a quote unquote normative fashion is how I was experiencing it. And it was, it was unnerving. It was, it, it's, it's scary. It was scary, scary and surreal. Surreal for sure. That added layer. You mentioned how Miranda, one of her strengths is 
memory. In fact, in a job interview, she takes with a logistics firm. In her job interview, she says, I remember everything. It's among her strongest qualities. We don't know much about her background, except that her father worked on a ship, and she learned a lot from observing him. We see how smart she is, fiercely smart, and fluent in Chinese, I should add. By the way, we can talk about that too. You are very convincing in that. So now we are speaking before the season finale. I don't want you to spoil anything, and I certainly don't want to put you on the spot. But from what we've seen, we don't know that much about. Miranda's background outside of the fact that her dad worked on a ship and she's very smart. How did you form her character without knowing much about her? That's the funny part. I knew everything. And you all will come to learn more ah. as the finale comes in the next couple of days, which is sad and ex- exciting at the same time. But it was really a crafting with Patrick Somerville and Hiro Mirai, the creator and showrunner, Patrick, and the episodes one and three director, Hiro. We really were just super connected and crafting together what the experience of Miranda was, how she was navigating the world. This is a woman who, there are so much that was a part of the scripts that began to shift as the the story was being produced. And so I wasn't in the cold and and not to mention the book, right? Like the show drives itself. It is not necessarily inherently like driving in the manner of the book. And so we, you know, take creative license to do what we will. But there are core qualities that are a part of the novel Miranda that are, are witnessable in Miranda in the limited series too. So I wasn't in a naked place, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't a vacuum. And and it sounds like the executive producer and adapter, do you call him adapter, Patrick Somerville? Sure, the adapter, yeah, yeah. And your director were helpful in your realizing Miranda. She's an artist, and she creates the very art that is the catalyst for this story. How did your own experience as a visual and performance artist influence your portrayal on screen? (laughs) It's so funny. I wasn't thinking about what I do because I intentionally call myself an artist. I identify as an artist. I participate in our artistic communities. I'm having those those dialogues. Miranda isn't an identifiable artist. She is doing what she does to navigate the world that she is around. She is doing what she does to to become more self-aware. I think we all, like all artists, I would hope that all artists are trying to get to the core of a self, to get to a deeper understanding of who they are. But she's not doing it in an effort to be commercial. She's not doing it in an effort to reap capitalistic benefit. Miranda is doing it to find a whole self. And so Miranda says she's in logistics. Miranda's a supply chain expert. That's who Miranda thinks she is. That's who Miranda defines herself as. She is doing this creation 
because that's just something that human beings have the capacity to do. And that is what she chose to do in order to, to find her whole self. And that's why she prints that book to just share with the community that was a part of a pivotal moment when she was making and when she unmade and when when she therein remade again right so she she burns the pool house we all know this at this point and and she starts over because it's not about other people it's not about showing off it's not about any of that it's it's about it's about going into a deeper darker self in order to come out on the other side and she finally came out on the other side. And the, the difference between her is that she doesn't get to control the longevity and the legacy of what her work does for the people who are able to witness it. Yeah, but ironically, its survival is part of what sustains everyone else's. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which is a critical need, right? Like if there were a preface or whatnot in the book for her to say what this was, for her to say to anyone who reads it, who witnesses it, this is how it is to be perceived. And because she doesn't have the, the care of the legacy, it's been able to be interpreted by youthful minds, malleable minds in a way that might not have been her intention. And so it's misinterpreted, right? Or it's a baby that they were able to craft unto themselves in the situations that they were in, the traumatic situations that they were in. I just find that really interesting. I think that's an important lesson that I learned for myself as an artist who does identify as one, that it is that much more an inherent responsibility for me to care for my work and how it impacts the world. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with one of the stars of the critically acclaimed HBO series Station Eleven, Atlanta's very own multi-talented Danielle Detweiler. Danielle plays the character of Miranda Carroll. Part of what was fun for me knowing you and watching you on screen in the series is that I know that in real life, you are also a visual artist. Ha ha ha, rest of the world, which is also viewing this season. You don't necessarily know this. In fact, the last time you were on City Lights, Danielle, was for the Atlanta Washerwoman Strike, the show you yes, curated. Yes, yes, Will to Adorn, yeah. Will to Adorn at the Mint Gallery, which was not only a fantastic exhibition, but an important history lesson for us. So I went back to look at your artist statement, your visual artist statement, and I wanted to ask you about this. I'm going to read just a portion from it. We learned that you create spaces for interfacing with black female subjectivity as a daily being in myriad social spheres. How does that inform your portrayal of Miranda, if it does? I think it's inherently a part of it. Though we don't necessarily have a discussion about race in the limited series, we are looking at a politicized body. I am a Black woman, and that is significant to, to the experience of my body. 
and, and we get to delve into how she's just literally moving about the world. That's important. How she attains, how she shifts once she comes into what she is, you know, what she does, how she is different and unique and yet smart and withdrawn and guarded and intentional about how she makes. I think that surely is informing the care that I have and that I think about when I'm thinking about Black women in this world. That's truly informing how I handled who who Miranda was and how she navigated space. (laughs) She's different. We do know she's a Caribbean, she's Caribbean born, but she's American raised. And that's a significant difference in, and, and the trauma that we will learn of in the finale, how that informs how she takes space. So I'm always thinking about that. I'm always thinking about that. Yeah. Okay. Here we go with the retelling of the Passover story and the Exodus, <laughs> my version of it. Danielle, The first time I saw you perform was in True Colors' production of Will Powers' play, Fetch Clay, Make Man. Oh, my goodness. That's 2016. (laughs) Yes, six years ago, you played Sanji Clay, the wife of the man whom we know as Muhammad Ali. I was absolutely blown away. Now, your character didn't have that much time on stage, nowhere near the length of time as the men did. But I had to know who you were, and I never forgot it. Everything I saw you in since took me back to that. And watching Station 11 took me back to that as well, because... I think it may be fair to say that your trademark as an actor, going back to my first encounter with you, is intensity. Would that be correct? <laughs> that, that, I would dare say that is correct, Lois. Oh, good. I mean, hey. hey. Feminized or masculinized, it is intensity. <laughs> there you go. I mean, hey, you're in decent company, Marlon Brando. We can think of some other intense actors who are pretty good because you certainly deliver intensity in Miranda. If you are to receive an award for your role, and I think that is quite likely, I believe the scene that will be played is in episode three, which is titled The Hurricane. When you are in front of a group of corporate executives giving a pitch, but changing course to tell them that the man you loved died last night and you went to work. You repeat that for a total of three times and completely break down sobbing. Okay, that's going to be not only the scene that gets you the award and the clip that will be played. But I think for every director who casts you from here on, that will be what lands your role. I wish we could play a clip. I don't think we have rights from HBO. And I'm not going to ask you to do that right now, but would you talk about that scene? Oh. Lois, that came in the first three days of shooting. (gasps) (laughs) 
oh my goodness, of course, it, the story is nonlinear. So you shot out of order too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It came in the first three days of shooting and oh, it's amazing how that is the experience of us all. I like to think, I think at this point in still dealing with the pandemic, I really don't know where my head was at. I was entrenched in the dialogue with Hero at the time. He said one word that was critical and he said, it's absurd. This is absurd. Miranda is someone who knows that the world is, is turning upside down and is navigating how to deal with a world turning upside down before everybody else in Station Eleven deals with a world turning upside down. She's doing it pre-pandemic in the chaos of making the book Station Eleven for herself. And so to witness all of that, you know, like to think about it, to be aware of she is she is a person navigating a particular trauma and has come full circle and then cannot complete the circle because her lover is dead, because the man she loves is dead and, and is now doing this thing to what? Pacify her, her peer, Jim Phelps, because he couldn't come to grips with it before when she told him because they couldn't escape. There is some kind of internal clock that turns on for us as humans when, when the wretched happens, when the gruesome happens. We start to, we do weird things. When, when critical stuff happens to our bodies and our minds, sometimes the mind just takes us to a, a place where, where it, it goes into the routine. And in the midst of doing this routine, she recognizes how it, it is not true. It is not true to her body. It is not true to her mind. It's not true to the spirit of this moment. And so she, she falls apart. And I mean, I have plenty of personal things that can support me in understanding what that emotionally is. And then it was coming. It was an impending thing. Even before I flew to Chicago, it was like, oh, oh, this rumbling of this peculiar flu was happening. But I, I hadn't given it that much attention quite yet. And you're finding out more about the story, more about the environment, more about who your character, in my case, Miranda, is along the way. I knew more later on than I did necessarily in the first three days. And so, I don't know, I think it's a spiritual moment to come apart in that way. And I think that we have been coming apart in that way. And some people want to go back to pre-rupture, but you can't go back to pre-rupture. You have to accept the flow of, of the hurricane, the flow of the change that is, is, is imminent. And we're still in the midst of the, of the chaos to today. Brilliant. Thank you. On a lighter note, what was it like working with that group of actors and creatives behind the scenes? <laughs> it was isolating for me because Miranda's who she is. She's navigating the world alone in a kind of way. Everybody else is post-pandemic, well, post-flu in the story and mine right. is true. So, you know, um, primarily I worked with Gael and David Wilmot and those were my, you know, my buddies. <laughs> and so it was about really harnessing, you know, an intimacy between all of us because that's the truth of the experience in the story that they, they have this thing that collapses due to Miranda's need to, to, to fulfill herself. We just had a lot of fun. David and Gael are two men who have a long history in this art game in general, in a lot of ways. 
And so I would just listen to stories of them and, and we laughed and we, we, <laughs> we, we were on set long, 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 beautiful hours. And it was a joy to do together. Actor, visual artist, and performance artist, Danielle Deadweiler. Her HBO series Station Eleven had its season finale last night, and now the entire series is available for streaming through HBO Max. In our interview, Danielle and I referred to an earlier conversation on City Lights about her art show Will to Adorn at the Mint Gallery last year. In a moment, we'll listen back to a clip of that interview and learn about the washerwomen's strike of 1881. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. If you are just tuning in, earlier this hour we spoke with Atlanta actor Danielle Deadweiler about her role in the critically acclaimed HBO series Station Eleven. Deadweiler is a Renaissance woman. And she's joined City Lights in the past to discuss both her visual art and her performance art, in addition to acting. Last year, she had a multimedia art exhibition at Mint Gallery called Will to Adore. And in it, she explored the Atlanta washerwomen's strike in 1881. Here, she explains the significance of the strike? Well, it locates civil rights and resistance in a Southern context way before 1965. We always locate ourselves in the civil rights movement and the value of Dr. King and the value of Dr. Abernathy and that community. And they are, they really are important. And that's a, a paternally led understanding of what civil rights has been in the South. However, the Washerwomen's Strike of 1881 in Atlanta was women-led. It helped us understand that we have been resisting white supremacy. We have been resisting injustices and racism for an extremely long time. And even before the 1881 strike, because in the articles that I've read for the research of this project, there were strikes that were in Mississippi. There were strikes that were in Alabama. 
Washerwomen have been doing this for a long time, seeking equity and seeking greater value monetarily for the works that they provide. And so there was a particular kind of success that took place in 1881 because it was so strategic, like the political movements that the women were making and the alignments that they were having enabled them to make a great impact because the cotton exposition was coming and because they stood extremely firm in their uh, desire to do so. And because so many women, upwards of 3,000, proliferated to become this stronghold that said, we will not work until we are valued according to our standards. And we see what you do to the people in our community, specifically the men. We see how you have wrangled life for us in a particular way not anymore. And so it's just really important for us to locate all of these stories and to state them over and over again, because we know the civil rights movement of the 60s so much, but we don't know these other stories and the legacy that they've you know, extended and handed to us. I applaud your purpose here because Indeed, the civil rights achievements of the mid to late 1950s leading up to the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act are monumental, indisputably. Yet there was so much more that took place before that that is not in history books that we are not aware of. And I I think it's so important that you are making us aware of an event that bore tremendous significance and bravery for its time. Exactly. Bravery, right? At a time where in our minds, when you think of history, you think of it in a certain kind of way. But, you know, for them to have that kind of that gall and that seriousness of value, that's an indispensable quality of life and culture to know. And it, it would have been a great disservice to not look at it again, because I was introduced to it in Angela Davis Johnson's work that took place in 2016 at Mint Gallery. And I think I knew about it a little bit before then, but more information began to come to me as I saw it more and more. And I began to dig on my own to learn the details of the event. So I just feel like legacy is such an important term in relation to this work and in relation to just the entire like effort of the practice. We have to keep repeating and repeating and repeating these stories because there is not a lot of information in the historical records for the actions of these women. Yes, and I'm thinking now of the sanitation workers' strike mm -hmm. in Memphis, where mm -hmm. Dr. King marched with them and the signs they held saying, I am a man. These were women, 1881, so this is, what, 70, 80 years before that? What was the outcome of the strike by the women? They got what they wanted, okay? That's what, that was the outcome. They got what they wanted. And the way that they said it, the beauty of it, it was, don't forget this. It was brash. It was ballsy. It was, you're going to give me what I want. We mean business or no work from us. You know, it, it, we will have full control. It was like, you know, they set the intention and it became so. You know, they got what they wanted and they said, we're not afraid of the repercussions. 
And that's what happened at a time when this is the funny part. Like there were, you, you know, industrial <laughs> laundromats coming into view, right? They were happening. And there was the threat of that in this, uh, in this region too, but it didn't happen. That's not what happened. They knew who their oppressors were and what they wanted and what they needed. And they knew the climate of the times, and they used all of that to their advantage and they got their increase. Artist Danielle Detweiler from our January 2021 conversation. That entire interview is available for streaming on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Danielle just explained the significance of the Atlanta washerwomen's strike of 1881. And coming up... We'll learn more civil rights history with Nicole A. Moore, Director of Education at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Life. On WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This Sunday, January 15th, is the date that 93 years ago Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was born. His birthday is observed as a national holiday on the third Monday of January the only federal holiday designated as a national day of service. Atlanta takes special pride in Dr. King as a native son. And last year, Nicole A. Moore, the director of education at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, spoke with me via Zoom about Dr. King's life. She began by sharing significant MLK landmarks around this city that people can visit. Dr. King was born here in Atlanta in 1929. He was raised here. He lived with his family, his mother, his father, his sister, and his brother. Their house is still standing. It's part of the National Park. Even just standing outside of it and realizing, like, this is where Dr. King grew up is pretty extraordinary. He went to Booker T. Washington High School here in Atlanta, and then he matriculated to go to Morehouse College at the age of 15. Um, So, like, his formative years are really spent in the heart of Atlanta. And I always tell people one of the greatest places to kind of really connect with, you know, what would have it been like, or just to be in the places where Dr. King walked and talked and grew up, is to really walk down Auburn Avenue and just kind of rest in that, because that was his neighborhood. That was the environment that he was around. And it's really amazing to know this house that looks kind of small from the outside, but when you go inside, it is it is surprisingly massive. This is where he grew up. This is where he, you know, learned lessons from his mother and his father. This is where he was with his grandparents. And it's an everyday place. And it just gets you to realize that greatness can come from anywhere. Oh, yes. I read that he was born Michael Luther King Jr. Do we know why he changed his name? 
So his father changed his name as well after Martin Luther. And so they went from being Michael Kings to Martin Luther Kings, both senior and junior. Um, this happened, I wanna say when Dr. King, it's, it's really funny calling him Dr. King, talking about him as a child, but this is around like the age of five. So, you know, they found inspiration in Martin Luther and they wanted to change their names and they did. And a lot of people, you know, I'll say, you know, Michael King, and they're like, well, who is that? So <laughs> like, let's back it up to the birth certificate. Let's back it up a little bit further and, and, and let you know a secret about him is that his name wasn't always Martin. You mentioned that MLK was a Morehouse man. He entered college at the young age of 15. He wrote in his autobiography that it was the first place he ever had a frank discussion about race. Would you talk about how attending Morehouse was transformative for MLK? Absolutely. He had, you know, had incidences around race growing up with his father, but it's when he, you know, left home, goes to Morehouse, that they're having these really hard and intellectual conversations about race. And that's where his thoughts around race and social justice really start to matriculate. Um, that's where he's able to be exposed to folks like um, Henry Davis Thoreau in his on, this, on Civil Disobedience. That's where he is mentored by people like Dr. Benjamin Mays. That's where he's really able to grasp the concept of what it means to be Black in America, where he gets to see that, you know, the injustice isn't just relegated to the Southern states, that it's everywhere, and that this is an illness of the country that needs to be remedied. And so this time at Morehouse, he really is forming his thoughts on, all right, how do I operate in this landscape? Who are my allies in this? And how can we overturn the system? And, you know, it could be very philosophical starting off as a college undergrad, but this is something that stays with him. And it eventually it becomes his life work. That seed that was planted with interactions with his father is something that really, really blooms in his time at Morehouse. At what point in his life did Martin Luther King Jr. begin to get involved with actions against racial inequality? So that pivotal moment where we see um, King become activist, I would have to say is in Montgomery in 1955 when he's elected president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. He was just starting out his role as pastor at Dexter um, Baptist Church. He was aware, he was active with the NAACP, but it's when you have the bus boycott with Rosa Parks led by the Women's Political Council that King is seriously just thrust into the limelight and into this life of activism. And it's something that it wasn't a foreign idea to him. He had had these conversations. Part of his and Mrs. King's relationship was about social activism and their conversations around that. And I think he was probably like, you know, new family, new location. Let me let me just kind of see, see how things are. And members of that community were like, no, no, no. You're gonna be the guy that takes us to the next level. 
um, that is really when he embraces this idea of social change um, and using the pulpit as a method to spread the word, but also to ensure that we're practicing nonviolence, that we're practicing civil disobedience that still kind of follows the rule of law, but it takes a stand. Yes, nonviolent social change. If someone wanted to create their own tour, a self-guided tour of historic sites in Atlanta related to Dr. King, where would you recommend beginning? I would honestly probably start at the home site. Still. I would start there because that is where it all begins. I would really just kind of see the neighborhood that he grew up in. The houses there are, the shotgun houses across the street, they're pretty preserved just to see kind of the landscape. I would recommend walking down Auburn Avenue, really, and and just imagine it before the highway was there, seeing how this was, this was his community, right? This is where you had residential Black life in downtown Atlanta, but then you cross over into the business realm of Black Atlanta, and you see places like the Atlanta Life Building, you see the repository, you see the Atlanta Daily World, those buildings, and understand that for us today, it just kind of looks like, oh, these are some old buildings, but it really encapsulates the Black experience in so many cities. Like we had businesses, we had social centers, we had religion, we had banking, we, we had what we needed because this was the only place that we could be accepted. And really walking up and down Auburn Avenue and seeing how it's changed, but also how those threads of history are still there, to me, it's such a grounding point because we get to understand how change did happen. And when you look at the highway, you realize that it cuts right through that neighborhood and it separates it from the business district to the residential district. When it was okay to be outside, we would do a couple of walks up and down Auburn Avenue and just really seeing that and seeing how so much has changed, it put in perspective why we should value Black history um, and why we should value the history um, in our neighborhoods. And so I, I would say if somebody was like, well, what can I do that's relatively safe? Grab a jacket, bundle up, walk up and down Auburn Avenue. It's about a mile, but see Wheat Street, see Ebenezer, see Big Bethel and realize how much of Atlanta's Black culture rested within that corridor. The King Center for Nonviolent Social Change houses many wonderful artifacts related to MLK. Outdoors, what do visitors see in Freedom Plaza? In Freedom Plaza, I think one of the most, two of the striking things that exist are the eternal flame that's there but then also the crypt, which ends up being the final resting place for Dr. King and Mrs. King. And it is a moment of reflection. It's a moment of gratitude, really. Particularly these two individuals really dedicated their adult life to providing methods to which we can move about the world today. And I think it's important to kind of just stop and think like, what would the world have been like had there not been a Dr. King. Um, yes, there were 
there are other activists who did incredible things. And so it's, it's those moments where you realize, well, what would have it looked like? But also just to say, thank you. Like, thanks so much. And to remember that we are a part of Dr. King's beloved community. Whether we have actually come together fully, we're still working on that part. But we, we recognize that when he was talking about the World House, when he was talking about the beloved community, he was talking about every person looking out for each other, working together. And I think just being in that moment outside when you see that eternal flame, for me, it's, it's a reminder that the work will never be finished, but it's also just a moment to say thank you for what you've given us and let's, and let's carry the torch forward. Located on historic Auburn Avenue, of course, is Ebenezer Baptist Church where Dr. King, his father and grandfather preached. And now our Senator-elect, Reverend Raphael Warnock preaches there. This church has a beautiful as well as tragic history. What role did Ebenezer Baptist Church play in Dr. King's life? I mean, it was his grandfather's church, right? Yeah. And so he grew up in this church. He, his father becomes co-pastor, and then he eventually becomes co-pastor. And it really is, I think, the foundation of how he engaged the community. It's the foundation of what he found to be important. It's also kind of that grounding of his faith. And when you're in old, I always differentiate between old Ebenezer and new Ebenezer, right? Mm -hmm. When you're in old Ebenezer, kind of seeing how small the sanctuary actually is, in thinking about the historic sermons that have come out of that space, that have come off of that pulpit, but also thinking of the moments in history that it has seen. I see Ebenezer as a place for, again, understanding how religion shapes the Black experience and what grounds many of us in the continued fight. So I would look at Ebenezer as just kind of this, it's a balm, right? It is the place that we go when we're hurting. It's the place that we go when we are joyful. It is, it soothes our souls. And to understand that for Dr. King, that was almost a second home. It is the place where he found, can't say definitively, but it's probably one of those places where he found solace, where he knew, you know, his largest critics would be, but also his largest supporters would be because they're the ones that are gonna keep him honest, that they're the ones that are gonna keep him real because they knew him. They knew him from when he was a child to when he was an adult. And unfortunately for some of those congregants, they knew him in his death by being at his funeral. And I think for him, that is the place where he probably could go and reset to re-energize himself so that he could continue to carry out the work in other cities. Nicole, you are a public historian. Would you tell us some of the educational initiatives that you lead at the Center for Civil and Human Rights? Absolutely. So I am responsible for our K through 12 initiatives. So your school experiences, presentations, um, just really educating our young people on the roles of activism in the civil rights movement, but also looking at the human rights movement on a global level and how these fights aren't unique to the United States. So helping students really kind of understand the how we got here. I know that's a question that a lot of people have been asking lately. 
So looking at how segregation and Jim Crow leads to this fight for equality, which gives us the civil rights movement and a lot of grassroots organizing, but then also how those battles and how, and how that fight for equal rights in the United States served as inspiration for movements across the globe and how there's so much work to be done. So getting the students to really see that, okay, maybe you aren't looking at how to integrate a shoe store, but where do you see somebody's rights being violated? Let me show you some examples of your historical peers that were taking a stand, that were creating change, not just for their communities, but realizing there was a ripple effect. I love doing that with the babies because they get it, right? And unfortunately, we left them with a world where they don't get to relax too much. And so making sure that they have the knowledge, that they have the history, that they have the context is something that I absolutely love doing with the team and ensuring that when we watch the next generation, we know that we've given them the best that we could. And so far, babies are running with it. <laughs> Quite proud. That's, that's pretty heartening. How long have you been with this center? I've been with the center for going on six years now. Well, it sounds like they are very fortunate to have your talent. I loved your description of how the babies get it. Why is it important that young activists aspire to be like Dr. King when they're seeking to implement change in their own communities? I think it's important for them to look at Dr. King and the John Lewis's and the Joanne Robinson's and all of those civil rights icons because they started out young. John Lewis was a, he was a teenager when he started. And, you know, they tend to see just Dr. King as an adult. They tend to see John Lewis as an adult. But what they need to realize is that this was a life of work. It didn't come easy. And they're not alone in this. Like people have laid a blueprint for them down. And to just see that when they're weary or when they're like, I don't know if anything's going to come of this, to really have these figures to look back on, to see their struggles, to see their successes, but also to see their failures, to know that it's okay if you make a mistake, you have to get back up, you have to keep moving. I think that's what's so important, not striving for perfection, but understanding that this is an ongoing struggle and this is ongoing work is critical. It's important not to give up and it is important to, to really have a hard conversation. Like, you know, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this for a little while? Do you want to do this for a long time? Is this a lifetime of service or is this a moment of service? And it's okay if you're like, hey, you know what? <laughs> I'm good here. I'm going to do something else in a couple of years. But, but just to realize that they're not the first and they won't be the last. And having those figures to look back to and then realizing that in a couple of years, another generation is going to be looking at them, you know, it provides encouragement. Nicole A. Moore, Director of Education at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, recorded via Zoom last year. More information is available on our website wabe.org slash city lights. Finally, Kinara, a professional choir based in Georgia, 
presents a King Holiday concert with a world premiere by the American composer Heather Gillian. Her piece, Southern Dissonance, has a text drawn from the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Alice Walker, John Lewis, Jimmy Carter, and Stacey Abrams with an opening text by Langston Hughes. The concert is Saturday at 8 p.m. in the Glen Memorial Church on the Emory campus. The program also will be live-streamed. Admission is free, though tickets are required. More information at eventbrite.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., we bring you a special program from American Public Media for the MLK holiday, King's Last March, focusing on the final year of Dr. King's life, one of the most challenging and controversial chapters in his career. When City Lights returns on Tuesday, we'll discuss the life and legacy of actor Sidney Poitier with Professor Nsenga Burton from Emory University's Department of Film and Media Studies. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canapy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.